What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. This is your co-host, Posh. I'm Pat. And we're here with Steve Stewart, founder of Vest. We're at the WeWork in... Where is this? Uh, We're in like West Hollywood, Hollywood. Pacific Design Center. West Hollywood! Shout out. There we go. There we go. There we go. Steve, Pat, and I are super excited for this one because we have interviewed folks in tech, in hospitality and e-commerce and music all this stuff music and i think you are a little bit special in the sense that you have that music background you have that tech background and also at the same time you're looking into the future with blockchain and what you're doing here and obviously it's gonna, i think it's gonna be a great conversation uh and we're just excited to dive right in so we'd like to kind of start it off real simple tell us a little bit about your background where did you grow up what was life like for little Steve? Came from a little shack in the middle of... No, um, I grew up in Orange County. There you go. And uh, I played in bands from third grade on up through high school. And when I was in high school, my band was putting out a record right after high school, actually. Um, it was kind of a weird scene. I mean, LA was always like the music scene. Orange yeah. County is kind of like the stepchild. There's probably only five or six clubs down there that you could play. Who's like the biggest act out of Orange County, do you know? Blink-182, Blink no 182. doubt. I mean, there's a lot of bands that came after that were down there. Yeah. Um, but like spots like the Golden Bear, Goodies, um, man, there's only like a handful. So to play through those, everybody kind of knew each other. And one of the bands that was playing with my band at different gigs was a band called Swat Asant, and they became known as Mighty Joe Young. Mm. And then I was a hack drummer, so I figured I wasn't ever going to just pursue that path um, I went to school at UCLA. When I got out, I was interning for a, a management company called Direct Management. Uh, Steve Jensen, Martin Kirkup, shout out. Mm-hmm. Uh, those guys are still around. They're still major. Steve still manages Katy Perry. Um, and then I went to work for Ice T's manager. Um, this is like probably late 80s, early 90s. I was his assistant for a couple years. Made contacts in the music world, started a network. And then the guys that were my sister band, which were called Mighty Joe Young, shot me a cassette. This is back when mm. there was cassettes. And they said, um, can you help us shop a record deal? And I said, sure. So I went out to all the lawyers and, att- and att- agents and record company, A&R people that I knew, and knocked on doors for about a year and a half. Um, got every door slammed in my face except one. Um, a guy named Don Muller took the tape at a show and... His best friend was a guy named Tom Carolyn, who was an A&R guy at Atlantic Records. And we made a deal with Atlantic in April of 92, um, changed the name from Mighty Joe Young to Stone Temple Pilots, yep. and put a record out in September of 92, and uh, quit my job. It was a plush. <laughs> the album was called Core, but the, yeah. the, the main song off that was called Plush. But yeah, the first great single- song was called Sex Type Thing. We wanted to go and get all the rock stuff first because yeah. we knew Plush was kind of the mainstream hit, but we wanted to make sure we didn't alienate the heavy metal and the rock right. bands because we had no previous indie record. There was mm-hmm. no credibility yeah. factor at all. The band yeah. just came out of nowhere. And we definitely want to get into this kind of you know era in your life, but kind of going back, um, you know, we really like to dive into like the upbringing and stuff just because it really does a good job of painting a picture of like who, what your background is and people really get to connect the dots of like how you got to where you got to now. So sure. um, I guess as a kid growing up in Orange County, besides like, you know, music, was there anything else that you were interested in? Did you have pressures of going to school from like whether it was your parents or just society or people around you? What was kind of that vibe? Yeah, and I grew up in Santa Ana. So it wasn't like I grew up in Newport Beach or Lagoon. Yeah. I grew up in kind of like the grittiest part of Orange County. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in an area that was pretty gang infested at that point. Um, I had drug dealers and drive-by shootings on my block all the time. 
Um, but I got through that, you know, and it was weird. My high school was really, really integrated. It was probably one of the most integrated environments I've ever been in in my whole life. So, How did you get into music in the first place? I started playing trumpet when I was three, okay. or pardon me, when I was in third grade. Um, and I always loved playing music. And then I got into drums probably when I was maybe like in third or fourth grade after And did that. you have any like musicians in your family or... Or my dad actually imported the first Yamaha and Kawaii pianos. He wow. was a, a wholesaler. He imported stuff from Japan. Hmm. And wow. so we always had musical instruments around. Yeah. Um, he played. My two older half-brothers actually played in bands. Um, and then, like I said, I had a neighbor down the street that played. And then it was just finding little niches where you could play. And it wasn't an environment where everybody was in a garage band back then. Yeah. It was That came a lot later. Um, but I think... I always loved music. I, I listened to records, you know, to the point where they just wore out. Um, I can't was it mostly rock and roll or, or other? Yeah, you know, I think my first album was Steve Miller Band, Fly Like an Eagle. This is mm-hmm. way before you guys were born. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, like, Cheap Trick, Heaven Tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I won a top 10 album contest on KLOS, which was a L.A.-based radio station yeah. still around. They sent me, like, I thought they'd send me new albums. <laughs> they were actually cutouts, which... Really? You guys know they're like pro albums where they have a little circle punched That's out. That's right. Them. I remember those. So they just sent those, but it was Abbey Road and wow. like Earth, Wind, and Fire and Rumors from Fleetwood Mac and a, a bunch of classic records that I was able to. Uh, and I had a Techniques SL20 back in the day, and um, I just played the, the heck out of those records. Wow. So um, so you're you're kind of getting older, and, and it's time to, I guess you're in high school. You said you have a, a band, um, and then you go to college you said you went to ucla what did, did you yeah. study music or i went there to get into film believe it or not because i really liked film but i didn't have the grades by the time i went straight from my high school I was one of the few kids actually that went to a four-year school for my high school um i had to we had to really beg the counselors to take us on a tour because they were just putting people in junior college yeah. they were just yeah. wanting you to either go get a job or go mm-hmm. to, go to a jc um so i got them the tour ucla uh i guess i tested really well and i got in but it was a film you could film actually at UCLA at that point started in your junior year. So you had to go in as a, either a non-declared or I think I was poli sci because that kind of had the same type of classes, but mm-hmm. I had a, I don't know, like a three, two by the time I was a junior. Um, I had friends that went to JC and came in as juniors mm-hmm. that had four O's and they got into film school. So I ended up working on a lot of film projects from friends as a first AD, second AD, DP, um, producer with scheduling and stuff. Um, but I didn't really do music in college. I was playing at night in bands. So I yeah. would go home or I'd go back on weekends and play gigs in LA. We played the Roxy, the whiskey, I mean, all the clubs on sunset and then yeah. all the stuff in Orange County. And, and so, but why not like study music? Like what about it? Um, was it, did you just want to have it as like a side passion thing or uh, like, did you think that the industry wasn't going to be lucrative enough? Like why did you decide not to study music? It's interesting. I, I don't, I knew how to play by that point, so it wasn't so much a technical yeah. knowledge I was looking for, um, and I was already playing in bands. But I, I don't know, maybe I didn't think that the theory or the uh, the history of it was that interesting when I was actually performing already. Right. Um, and I, I you were already playing. like a student of it in life, right? Yeah, I was it's already like, doing it kind of, and, and yeah. I didn't want to, I don't know. I mean, I was really enthralled with film, and I thought I would get into film, but um, at that point... It took me on that journey when I interned for direct management as a senior, I believe. Um, you know, I was an intern. I was just basically getting coffee and downloading emails. And then the assistant was out with a band called Echo and the Bunnymen. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete DeFridis was the drummer. He passed away. But she was out with him so hard that she never came in for like a week. And the guys were like, hey, uh, can you start to do her work? And I'm like, sure. And they go, we'll pay you. 
I was like, all right. So I kind of took over for their main assistant and got into the business of music and saw how management worked and saw how they had pretty much like a bird's eye view of everything that happened. So they were dealing with sales, they're dealing with the label, they're dealing with touring videos, creation, the recording studio. I mean, they kind of had their hands in everything, which is a lot like a film producer. If you're producing a film, you've got the writer, you've got the production staff, the director, the cast, the crew, et cetera, and you're putting all those pieces together. So I really, I really actually took a liking to that. Did you ever think that you would end up at that moment in time in the business side of music? Yeah. I mean, I could see the path. I, the, Martin Kirkup, who was the GM at A&M, and Steve Jensen, the guys that were the principal of direct management, I mean, they were, they were regular guys. I mean, they, they had a background in music, mm-hmm. but they were just good people. And I think if you've got someone that you can trust as an artist, that's where that kind of relationship comes from. I mean... It's not especially in the music industry and just yeah. entertainment. But it's not brain surgery, right? right? Managing someone is not like a technical skill. It's it's more of a personal, interpersonal relationship thing. And then having an advocacy. So you're fighting for someone, helping them build a team, helping them build career strategies and, th- and things like that. It's not like, you know, if I if I cut this little scalp right there and then sew this thing up, it's not very technical. It's it's yeah. more of a global uh, piece. I mean, a lot of it is really managing people. Mm-hmm. And, and relationships and hopes and aspirations. I mean, a lot of artists think, all I have to do is get a record deal, right? And then, and then, it's, then it's over. It's like, yeah. no, that's actually the beginning. Yeah. If you're lucky enough you got to pay back that advance, year, baby. You got, if you ever do, right? <laughs> Most artists do. never do. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. So you end up graduating UCLA. Yep. And what do you do after? I mean, do, is there a job that you have lined up? You know, are you even worried about that? What, what's, the, what's the next step? So the, the first gig I had out of college, I was working at Continental Airlines from 8 to midnight at LAX booking huh. reservations. Are they still around? No. They turned into United. United okay. bought them. Got it. And during the day, so that was my night job. My day job was working for a TV producer named Stephen J. Cannell. And he had done Hunter, 21 Jump Street, Wise Guy, a bunch of A-Team. I mean, he was a very prolific writer-producer based here in Hollywood because I wanted to still kind of keeping that TV realm. So I'd work nine to six in Hollywood. I would drive. I had a little tiny apartment in Inglewood or off Inglewood Avenue in uh, West LA. I'd stop there for dinner for like half an hour. And then I'd have to be at the airport by eight and work eight to midnight as a res agent for Mm -hmm. continental. I did that for probably two years enough to get a bunch of free travel and Mm -hmm. go to Hawaii. I mean, I'd go to Hawaii like every weekend for five bucks. So it was kind of cool. You have family in Hawaii or no, I just love Hawaii. Um, (laughs) But then in the middle of that, I saw an opening for an assistant to Ice-T's manager, a guy named yeah. George Hinojosa, who's still his manager, by the way. Um, and around what like year is this? Like, is this this like, is 89, probably. Okay. I gotta, so it's like Ice-T's like, peak career. He had just done uh, Freedom of Speech. Mm-hmm. Actually, he just done Power, and he was in the middle of Freedom of Speech. This was before OG. Yeah. Um, but it was, yeah, he was, he was actually, it was before New Jack City. Yeah. Um, and before he did any film or TV stuff. And now he's probably known more for a, uh, as a TV actor than he right. is as, as a musician or rapper. But um, yeah, back then he was super credible. It was just kind of George and I working out of airport lounges. It was kind of, kind of yeah. weird. Um, George lived in New York at that point. So he would fly into LA. We'd work out of the American Airlines lounge. And then I worked out of the lawyer's conference room for probably a year. And then we got a little house in Burbank and worked out of that for uh, probably another t- until I left two years. Yeah. And I guess thinking back to that era of music, um, that was kind of when like hip hop was really like starting to take off, like in the late eighties. Right. I mean, NWA was like kind of on the scene. 
It um, was. I mean, hip hop's Grand, Grandmaster Flash was like what oh, early eighties or late seventies or something like that. It started in the late seventies. Seventies. So, yeah. what was the? I mean, what was the vibe like, especially on the West Coast and Ice T being like a like a more like a gangster rap uh, type of artist? Like, what? Like, did you did did you have an interest in in the hip hop industry? Like, did you see it? You know, being something as as big as it is today. Yeah, I mean, I knew nothing about it when I got there. I was an alt rock kid, right? I grew up playing rock and right. roll and alt rock in, in Orange County in, in L.A. Um, but I got educated pretty quickly, and it was it was taking off at that point. I think there was there's definitely this East Coast West Coast thing going on mm -hmm. back then. NWA was just coming out, mm -hmm. um, so there was a lot of I mean, a lot of crazy stuff was going on, and um, the whole body count cop killer thing came up. Yeah, um, and that was kind of shocking. I mean, I, I could tell you a story. Um, Ice was on Warner Brothers, and Jerry Levin was the CEO back then, and I remember he flew us out to New York in the middle of this big controversy. And uh, they sent their Gulfstream out to pick us up. We went out to Burbank Airport and and we're like, wow, you guys, is this plane based here? He's like, no, we flew out empty from New York to pick you guys up this morning. And it was Ice, uh, George's manager, Shawnee Sean, his buddy, and me. The four of us flew back out to New York um, and then sat in Jerry Levin's office while he spun Ice T records. <laughs> I mean, Jerry Levin was like kind of an accountant yeah. CEO. I mean, he had... Uh, it's a numbers guy. He wasn't really a street guy. Yeah. But to hear, you know, yo, yo, coming out of his thing. and um, This is ISIS sign at this point or no? He was on Warner Brothers. Okay, so he was. Okay. But this was where there was a lot of pressure. Controversy, yeah. yeah so was, so he, was he just playing the music so he'd like to hear the lyrics to like address it? I don't, I don't, he was just doing it because he thought that was the thing to do when yeah. you got Ice-T in your office. I, don't, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a little awkward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he... You know, he goes, look, we're behind you, man. First Amendment rights. You know, we got your back. Whatever it is, don't even worry about it. It's all good. We fly back to L.A., and I think it was a couple weeks later, Charlton Heston was at the shareholders meeting in Beverly Hills, and they were smart. They organized in a way. Most people do a boycott. They're like, okay, hey, don't, don't go buy these records. They went a step further and said, we're going to do a divestiture. We're, we're going to tell people to take their money, the institutional out investors, out of your company. Wow. So not just consumers boycotting, that's, that's one thing, yeah. but when you get the insurance companies and the VC funds and all the other private equity money that's coming out of Time Warner, the then executives, you're really screwed, yeah. then, then you're effed. Yeah. So um, then we got a call. It wasn't a plane. It wasn't a trip. It was like, uh, you know, we're really sorry, but uh, we're going to give you your records. We're going to give you all the money in the pipelines. We're going to give you everything, but you got to go and you got to go quietly. And we were like, wow, two weeks ago it was like, yeah, we're the voice of free speech. We right. got your back. We're a record. You're great. So they dropped dropped Ice T. Uh, they gave the masters and everything. Correct. I mean, I, the the deal was clean because they they knew they were in the wrong and they were just basically giving everything back. By the way, are you like 25 years old at this point? I was 23, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe 24. And and was it as as a young kid like that? Are you? Were you excited to be in this industry, or was it just like, oh, this is just my job? I was exciting. It was it was completely different, and I hadn't had too many jobs before yeah. that. But the idea of working on the fly, the idea of working out of an airport lounge, or yeah. working out of a lawyer's office, like there wasn't a building where you went to and opened the door, and that was your spot. It was like we were we were kind of just running. But um, in, in hindsight, like that was kind of like the turning point of like the hip hip hop industry, like that era of like, I, was that what's that one um, snippet that they have in 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 the beginning of like that Bone Thug song? It's like 
that politician saying like it's not about rap it's about rappers and like <laughs> this and that like it, you know yeah, they're, yeah. they're considered thugs like like it was like they, you know it, and and now to this point like in 2019 seeing how much hip-hop has an influence on the world and culture and everything it's insane so deep it was it was the pmrc tipper gore i mean there was a lot of weird i mean tipper gore is a liberal mm-hmm. right she's not a republican or a conservative right, right. this was liberal politics coming into music yep. it's kind of weird yeah. and it was but it was really onerous i mean you, we felt the pressure they had those little parental advisories that were forced to be put on records right, right. um it was pretty controversial so exciting stuff i mean it was it was crazy crazy days those days yeah. right at that little vortex where um we were moving off of warners and then we, brian turner picked us up at priority luckily um okay so right after he got dropped he got picked up yeah, yeah. and then he did i think one more album and priority that. was like an independent label at the time Priority or? was independent um and then they got picked up. I think they were ended up rolled into Interscope at some point. But I think back then yep. they were independent. Um, but there was no place, no, no other big label would touch you back then. Right. Right. It was so, still so. Still um, that happens. Do you con- continue to work with Ice T at that point, or do you are you going? To yeah, I was. Else? I was there probably another year after that. Um, and then, like I said, the guys I grew up with sent me a cassette, and they said, "Hey, can you help us get a deal?" So. By that point, I had networked. I had a, 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 you know, kind of a good feel for the environment. I had relationships in the business, and shopped their tape for like another year. Did you like? So I'm curious. When they sent you that tape, were you just like, yeah, whatever? Like, how good is this going to be? Like, what was? What were your thoughts back then? I mean, I thought it was amazing. I I grew up playing with them mm-hmm. in clubs and right. bars. So, so I you knew, knew who they were. I knew who they were. I knew the material. I my stuff that I played was kind of in a similar vein. So it was very familiar. I thought the demo was really good. I thought there was stuff there. In fact, I don't know if you listen to the first record, there's a song called Where the River Goes um, that actually the demo version of that song sounds better, I think, than the album version. But mm-hmm. it, a lot of it translated across. Um, if you want to hop into that, we, you know, that deal got closed. Robert DeLeo, the bass player, um, said, hey, you should check out this producer. We're looking at producers for the record. A guy named Brendan O'Brien, who was Rick Rubin's like second engineer guy. Mm. Um, he had made one record, I think, either for Jackal or Uncle Green. I can't remember which one. But we got him very economically. And if you don't know, Brendan went on to make another 15 or 20. He's probably the most prolific alt-rock producer of the 90s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Soundgarden, Red Hot mm-hmm. Chili Peppers, well, Pearl Jam. And right. he's Like the greatest. He, yeah. Yeah. He, and, he's, and he's a guitar player. He's in the Georgia, Sat- Georgia Satellites for a minute. And mm-hmm. so he brought this southern guitar sensibility as well as just being a great guy to hang out with. So the band really related. Um, he being a player, something that garners respect. Um, but I think, you know, at that point, there's this big funk kind of L.A. funk sound that Chili Peppers, early Chili Peppers, Fishbone, a lot of bands in L.A. that were just slap bass funk. Mm-hmm. Um, Mighty Joe Young came out of that. And I think Brendan helped them pull from that into, you know, something that was even at a higher level. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they became Stone, Stone Temple pilots. They did. We made the record as Mighty Joe Young, and yeah. um, the lawyers called us probably, I think it was in July or August, um, and said, look, there's a blues player named Mighty Joe Young who's still alive. You probably can't use that name. So, Damn IP lawyers. <laughs> Is that just by chance? Like, did they even know? Or We didn't know. You guys didn't know. But the lawyers came to us, because at that point they're doing copyright checks and they're getting the artwork yeah. lined up and all that stuff. And they're like, there's a conflict. <laughs> so it was Jesus. the first of obvious, you know, thousands yeah. of conflicts. But the band was freaked out. They're like, we have to change our name. I'm like, yeah. So we went through lists of names literally for three months. 
And Jeez. a couple guys were like, I quit. I'm like, you can't quit, right? This is just the name of the band. <laughs> not over a name. Let's get it right. So um, we went through a bunch of names. I think we ended up with, um, there was one Stereo Temple Pirates. I said, guys, you can't, the pirate uh, thing, that's like the eye patch. You can't. Yeah, you can't. And there's yeah, Stereo yeah, Lab yeah. and Stereo MCs. Slick Rick has that down. We're not trying to get Yeah. <laughs> so I said, you know, Pilots is probably cleaner. Yeah. Okay, cool, Pilots. And then um, they liked STP when we grew up. We had those stickers on our bikes and stuff. Mm-hmm. STP oil treatments or whatever. And right. so we went with Stone Temple Pilots, put the rec out, record out in September of 92. Um, by November, it was gold. Wow. By February, it was platinum. As a brand new band. Like, I mean, brand new shot out of the, out of the gun. It was, wow. I mean, you know, Pearl Jam had, had just came out, Nirvana before them. Yeah. Um, I think Atlantic wanted to be, have, have, a, have a dog in that race. Yeah. Um, and we were that dog. But they wanted to come out with plush. The label's like, you got to go with the hit. And and it was weird. It was really polarizing. I think it was us, our attorney, and maybe one other person at the label. Everybody else said, you got to go with the hit. And we fought them for a long time. And they, here's what it came down. They said, look, if you do plush, we'll give you, I think it was like 500000 for the video. If you do sex type thing, we'll give you 50000 for the video. Why was that? Like, why did they want that record so badly? they like, knew it was going to be a hit. But, but oh, I guess, um, let me frame it this way. Like, why didn't, why didn't you want to go with Plush, and why did you want to go with Because we had no credibility. Just like you mentioned, there was no indie record. There was no, like, groundswell of audience out there. They hadn't toured. They had done anything Higher like risk. that. So what we wanted to do was go in and get all those metalheads. Mm. At that point, metal was still viable, right? Yep. You still had Metallica. Metallica, you still had, yep. There's a million bands and radio stations KNAC out here, um, KNAC out here. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a couple stations, KMET. Um, but if you jumped right to the mainstream alt rock hit, all those stations would be alienated. So we took their their bet. We took the fifty thousand dollar budget and said, okay, we're going to go make a video for fifty, and we're going to go tour um, with Dave Mustaine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, which we did, and. And it really engendered, to this day, a lot of those metal stations and PDs and MDs from those stations call me and they're like, man, I remember when you guys came by the station. We would, miss, we would have missed yeah. out on all of that. And I think the metal fans or the, even the, let's call them heavy rock fans, would just have pushed the band out. As so besides the sound, um, like, was there anything else about what you guys were doing on the back end, specifically you, um, that you feel like contributed to that quick like kind of just you know, success, like, was it like the right place, right time? Like, I'm sure there's a lot of work being done on the back end that you can like attribute it to. So, I mean, Atlantic, again, they wanted this, right? They needed a dog in the race. They had to have somebody, an artist in that same genre. Yeah. So So once like they were looking for it, once we, and Danny Goldberg just came on, he was the head of uh, the West coast at the point where we got brought in. He knew he was going to run the label eventually, but he also needed a hit band under him that he could grow up with kind of so when you come in with that politically um and someone's gonna move up those ranks but they're also you're waving the flag for you it helps you a lot so mm-hmm. i think they were looking at traction um, i remember the first forty thousand uh, units sold that was a big deal 75 was a big deal and then after like 100 it just started to take off and, and it's a machine those major labels are built to actually, once you get above 150,000 records, they go all in. It's like, yeah, yeah. they're, they're hits. Promos they're hit galore. Factors. Steve, I have a couple of questions that have to do more about, you know, your career path during that time. Number one, when you, after you got that cassette, after you were ready to kind of manage them, was that the only thing you were doing? Were you working another job? Were you making money? 
or it was it just I'm going all in on these guys? Um, I was still working for Ice T's manager early on, um, and I even made a deal with him. I said, "Look, I will cover all my costs." And I and at the point where my costs became more than he was paying me, I just I went out. But by that point, it was really close to where the deal was coming to play. So um, I worked for the band for free for about a year and a half, but I was making I think twenty five grand a year. I mean, it was like it was. You, yeah, guys, was a you guys would laugh <laughs> no i mean that's kind of how it is even to this day like yeah. even with streaming like unless you you know like the like the cutoff of like streams i think it's like something like less than a cent per thousand streams or something like that on on a platform like to make significant money to the point where the manager is getting paid decently you got to blow up in a sense like at least you know like i don't know like uh, tens of millions of streams across the board to yeah. be able to it's make getting something. better but back then you're right i mean i don't think anybody we didn't really even see money until you know, they give you an advance when you sign but right most of that goes into making the record right you could live off it and these we were just living in apartments with roommates and it wasn't you know yeah. everyone was living large at that point but did you have faith and hope that these guys would succeed or i mean like you must have. I mean, I, I don't know because you're getting paid twenty five thousand. I mean, at that point, it's still not a lot of money, and you got to be thinking about your future. Like, what what what's going to happen if this doesn't work out? You know. So I'm curious, what was going through your mind in that situation? I mean, I knew there was something there from the from the reactions that I would get, and from the live reactions from the audience. It was just a matter of finding the right opportunity. Yeah. And when Atlantic came up and said, look, we want to do a deal, it was a very middling record deal. It wasn't anything crazy. And they didn't know, right? They, they just want to sign a band, make a record. When we heard the record, we're like, oh. I mean, people knew at that point that record was pretty deep. Yeah. Um, I think there was probably six singles off that record at the end of the day, and that record sold like 10 million units. Yeah. Wow. It was, it was, it was pretty happy. I'm curious to your thoughts on this. If, if, if you were, if this was, that was today and you were, um, managing Stone Temple Pilots and there were a new band coming out, would you have done the same thing? Like, would you have worked with the label, um, or would you have gone independent knowing what you know now? I mean, it's weird. Someone asked me this the other day. They're like, why, you know, why don't you manage Axe anymore? And I said, well, after Napster in like 2000, 2003, yeah. uh, labels Fucked went everything up. <laughs> no, they have, they have what's called a 360 deal because yeah. they lost so much revenue from file sharing and before it was only a record deal was just the master just the recording itself to make up for that loss they said look we're going to get a piece of your touring a piece of your publishing a piece of your merchandising they're they're now looking at encompassing all of your income streams which yep. i understand the rationale behind it but from an artist's perspective it was a little weird because now you have no other alternative mm -hmm. right before if the record company maybe didn't do so well you might do great on touring live. You might have some money with publishing. If you got syncs, you can maybe sell some shirts and make some money for merch. Now you've got all your eggs in one basket, right? And I knew how those record companies worked. And, you know, sometimes you're tied to an executive. That executive leaves or gets kicked out and you're you like no a champion. stepchild. You're, yeah, there's no, yeah. One, there's no one waving the flag for you. So there's, uh, you guys maybe know, I mean, most bands don't make it. Even when you're signed, I would say one out of a hundred is actually making money for the label and pays for the other Yep, hundred bands. It's kind of like a side. venture capital firm. Hundred yeah. percent. It's exactly yeah. the analogy. Yeah, eighty percent of your revenue comes from 20, 20. or maybe even ninety ten at that point. Probably ninety ten. Yeah. yeah. So, um, 
Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And uh, also with the 360 deals, we had Kalise on the show um, very early on and, and she had a 360 deal. And I remember her talking about the struggles that she went through with that. And obviously, like, you know, if, if you're coming out the gate, you have a big record or that, you know, they're they're bullish on you. They'll give you these massive advances. And then most of the time, like you said, like people can't pay it off and they get stuck and they're like, shit, well, I don't even own it, my music in, anymore. And then they try to spin off and do something independently and it doesn't, you know, quite go as well. And that's kind of the spiral. And there was a point where they weren't letting you have your own websites, which was really odd because yeah. an artist wants to promote himself. I think that would benefit the label. But I, right. I distinctly remember, well, we're going to own the all your digital assets, which yeah. I think is different now. But um, so, so Stone Temple Pilots takes off. What's happening next? Like, what do you do? You continue to to ride out that wave, and how long were you with them? And what yeah, you... I ran with them for ten years. I mean, we had a wow. good run. I made five records with them. I helped them. Did you get their... a chance to work with Chester Bennington? No, Chester was after my time. Okay, um, I did the greatest hits record with them in '03. Um, Scott was, you know, not in a good way mm-hmm. towards the end of that. Um, it just wasn't functional. Um, and they went through a, a number of managers after myself. I think they had like three or four in the next year or two. Uh, and then it just, it became dysfunctional. And then they brought on Chester. Um, and this new guy, Jeff Gutt, I think is really good though. I saw yeah. something with him the other day. Um, it's, it's hard, right? You've got an arc, a career arc and 10 years is, is a long run a long time, yeah. for anybody in the music or sports business. I mean, you know, sports is even shorter. You get an injury the second season, you're, you're done. But, yeah. um, it was a good run. Um, I felt like I missed out on some of the stuff that was happening in tech because uh, your head's down, you know, focused on building this this machine. Um, and I think I always want to look at opportunities there towards the end of the 90s, um, early 2000s when that tech boom happened. So, right. Um, what after, did you feel like you missed out on? Well, I saw these companies that were being launched in Silicon Valley that were, you know, doing massive things. I mean, like outside were, of music. Correct. Yeah. But even even with like say Apple for example right I think the iPod came out in the early two thousands, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. really was a game changer. MP threes came out. Right. This is a, a really seminal period where the idea of consumption was changing. It went from vinyl to cassette to CD to digital. Right? MP three players. Right. That's Remember something you don't hear Rio anymore. And stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff was nascent technology. Some of it was believable. Some of it wasn't. Um, but. We could see that consumption was changing. We could see that, um, in my respect, I got a chance to talk to Sean Fanning mm-hmm. um, a few years back, and you know he just wanted to share and discover music. He wasn't some onerous devil trying to you know collapse an industry. He just said, "Look, I'm trying to get to my favorite songs and share the music I love with other people." And for those that don't know, who's Sean Fanning? He was the the, the guy behind Napster. Um, his dad, John, and Sean him. Parker and Sean Fanning, right? Parker came in a little bit later and, yeah. and was the business, uh, ran the business and brought some of the money in. Yeah. I, I think Sean was kind of the, the genesis of it. And, and he came from a really good place. Yeah. Uh, but the labels, you know, looked at that as a threat and yep. they thought they would litigate. And, um, it was just, they were doing very well until that happened. Mm-hmm. And then there became a generation that just thinks music is free because when someone's just yep. mm-hmm. sharing a hard drive with you and here's that was my generation songs, see? <laughs> right don't don't want to pay but it's yeah. and what i'm doing now with vast i mean part of it is bringing back the value right i mean i always say your favorite song maybe you listen to i mean for me a thousand times easy right my favorite movie i might see two or three or four times yeah. my favorite book i might read a couple times but music is something that carries with you decade after decade after your whole life yeah 
and for the thing I mean, you could get it, it for free like his the culture like it's like it's like when you think back like when you hear a song you remember like what was happening at that 100%. time 100% but it's the value of it is 99 cents or free i mean it's like why am i paying $22 for a movie ticket yeah. and i'm paying 99 cents for a song i mean that's mm-hmm. it's a weird upside down that was definitely a dark time in the music industry i remember like um you know the industry was really banking on like like ringtones at some point like soldier <laughs> boy true. had like the That's was true. making like 10 15 million dollars a year just off of his like ringtone <laughs> like more than his cd sales yeah. which yeah. is crazy um was that the superman song uh yeah yeah that's the one um i forget the name of the song soldier boy. crank that oh, yeah. um so uh so yeah so so now it's like the early 2000s and 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 you said up until 2003 you, you were with the stone temple pilots yeah i did their greatest hits record scott was incarcerated I think I know he was because I was the only guy to go visit him in jail, showing him artwork through this, you know, plexiglass bulletproof window. Jeez, <laughs> it was kind of crazy. Yeah, um, that came out. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I consulted and did some stuff. I, I tried to help artists that came up. I had another twenty bands in the in the interim of that ten year period, signed to every major label, every major publisher. So I had an idea of where the pain points were and saw how the industry had kind of stru- structured itself back then. Um, what about like? technology interested interested you like was it like how did you even yeah like i know a lot of folks say they have interest in technology but they're not really like staying up to date with what's going on and i know if you're like deep in in an industry and you see kind of the inner workings of it and you and you understand how technology can really help things out it's different but i guess for you like how did like what interested like what about it got you interested in technology i mean i come from a generation where i had the first macintosh that you could carry Right when I was at right. UCLA, was it my, like the Lisa or something, or like even before no, that? No, my my graduation gift from high school was an electric typewriter. Uh, right, so I was there my freshman year typing papers, a typewriter. And if anybody knows about typing school papers that are eight or ten pages long, if you want to add a sentence or take out a sentence, you have to retype the whole paper. Yeah. So when I saved up enough money to get a twelve hundred dollar Macintosh with a printer, inkjet printer, you know, one of these little Macs. That was a game changer, right? Mm. Now I could edit a paragraph or a <laughs> sentence in my paper immediately. And the yeah. kids that had the computers had an extra two or three hours Huge advantage, night. yeah. Huge, Huge game changer. Yeah. And I saw that and I thought, you know, technology is really a time saver. And it's really something that you, if it's exploited properly and used properly becomes a resource that it's going to put you way ahead. Similarly enough, the other day Pat and I were sitting down and we were just looking at some of the stocks and I saw that. Uh, Microsoft is a trillion dollar company, yeah. right? And we were, and Pat was like, "Can you like?" He's like, "Every single person on this planet has somehow been impacted by Microsoft, hundred yeah. percent, which is insane, right? Like what they did and what they are continuing to do in their industries. Like that's the ability of tech is the ability to impact more people faster, right? And I think right now we're going to start moving into a generation where because that's true." I think people are going to look into ways of how technology can impact people deeper since they've kind of already been able to impact the masses. It's like, how do, how is there now? How do we get more depth out of it? So, you know, I think, I think we're at a very interesting time in a bunch of different industries, like within tech um, to see how that's really going to work out. And I'm sure vest is a part of that movement as well. But before we talk about vest, what did, so you were talking about managing a bunch of different bands and, you know, until 2003, you were, you know, with STP, did you get yourself involved in tech in any way? or did I did. You- I started doing um, some startup stuff. There's a company called Go Yodel I was working with out of the Midwest that was, it was bundling 
digital marketing marketing platforms for small businesses, mm-hmm. which is kind of a kind of a mundane thing, yeah, but yeah. also a way to integrate new technology with old technology and, and help people get a boost from the from the, again the technology and the resources. Um, I did a company called Sports Buddies um, with Charles Como and and uh, a couple guys on that side that was a sports video sharing platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know what it really happened to it, but at, at one point it was a precursor to a lot of the sports ESPN apps mm. that you're seeing now. Where right. uh, It wasn't really a gaming app, um, but it was more about sharing. Was it kind of like House of Highlights or something, like where they, it's like now they share it's, It was more of a fan connection I see, I see, I see. app where people did share videos and stuff. Um, but I just, yeah, I, I was flying up to Silicon Valley. I'd, I'd done some stuff with Wilson Sonsini. Um, mm. I had an idea for a company called Show Spy. Um, which was a little ahead of its time where we were going to put cameras in all the venues around the world. Um, yeah. The idea was good, but the technology wasn't quite there because broadband and bandwidth was so right. restricted at that point. Um, but we thought you could watch shows around the world 24-7 from your laptop. Timing, man. If that started now. it's for, There's, there's companies sure that are trying to do it now. Yeah. Um, I still think it's valid. I, th- I still think if you want to see some kid in Mumbai or you want to see somebody in Berlin and it's two o'clock in the morning in LA, why shouldn't you be able to go on and check out what's going on around yeah. the world? Yeah. So it, and there were a couple of artists direct was really early. Um, friends of mine, Mark Geiger and Rick Rubin were involved in that where, um, that was an early online kind of a social network for artists. They were way ahead of their time. Yeah. Was um, it for like artists to like collaborate with each other or you had a, a page where you could feature your music okay. videos, content, whatever. And then you'd have an account and you could also sell through there. Mm. But it was was it kind of like um like like Bandcamp or like even like SoundCloud now like SoundCloud really doesn't or they they're starting to monetize more but it was kind yeah. of SoundCloud to me is like YouTube for audio right and now it's a little more refined but yeah. it was more like Bandcamp yeah a lot more like Bandcamp actually yeah um but again way ahead of their time and, and so then you're like so you're dabbling in different types of tech companies did you always feel like you would eventually end up back in the music industry somehow some way or were you open to just anything I mean I always had been on the artist side right it's weird I never worked for a label I never worked for a publisher. I always advocated for the artists because right. I thought that's where the value was. And I saw them, you know, getting in these deals or doing things that just weren't in their own benefit because they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, to get to an attorney that can advise you or a manager that can advise you is it's pretty tough. There's a lot of guys that are running around out there that, that claim they can help you, but um, it always bothered me. So being in a, someone who was in a band and, and ran with bands, um, it was always something that was right there in my head. Mm-hmm. What kind of roles were you doing while you were working with all these companies? I mean, I was basically like a COO. I, I would, I would operations. I would run operations for them. Um, sometimes an advisor. Uh, I don't think there were too many music things back then that were coming out. But uh, you know, I had access to talent. I had access to the industry and a lot of the executives that were there at that point. So um, sometimes I'd make those connections. Yeah. And, th- and throughout this time, like, did you, um, like, I guess, how did you feel about like your personal, I don't want to call it identity, but you know what I mean? Like, um, like if, eventually did you want to be like a, a CEO of your own company? Like, did you want to start your own company or were you just like open to just trying different things and be, ha- having different positions and kind of just being more free flowing rather than. I guess more of a like a I don't know I don't want to call it a narrow path but something that was more like refined. Yeah, I mean I was I was very open, you know, and I knew yeah. I, I don't have a coding background, so I knew it wasn't going to be someone that actually could build something from right. zero. Um, but I I was 
you know, I think as a, as a manager, again, you're putting pieces together. Mm-hmm. Right? You see what has to be built, and then you can plug different aspects of it together. And uh, I think that's a lot of what a CEO or a founder really does is you're taking a look at a 30,000-foot view and you're putting in pieces to be effective and to build something. So that type of mindset has been with me since probably since I was in college or even before. What are some of the things that you saw in Silicon Valley or in the tech scene that stood out to you while you were working there? Like whether it was things that were missing or things that were going well or what the future would look like based on the companies that you you were interacting with. I mean, I could tell you, it, a lot of it was engineering-based. It's still like that. Google is mm-hmm. a company of engineers, right? Microsoft, almost all engineers. I know they have a marketing department, but it seems, <laughs> I still look at Google and go, you guys have like 400 products. If you just hit that more button, keep yeah. looking, you'll find stuff like, I never heard of this Google, you know, Weight Watchers app or Google. <laughs> I mean, there's so many Google platforms that no mm-hmm. one's ever heard about. Yeah. So they're focused mostly on the development side and the engineering side. And I always thought there had to be a more humanistic approach to getting people involved with the products. Um, a story I can tell you was there was uh, the first windows media player, um, was coming out. Microsoft was launching it here and they wanted to have buy-in from the entertainment business. And they booked out the house of blues, which is gone now, but, um, like Bill Gates is going to be here. And we, they sent out, I think a hundred invites to, to a lot of the top music execs. And I somehow got invited and then the first thing they tell you when you get in the door is like, well, Bill Gates isn't going to be yeah, here. Shocking. We're showing you a video of Bill Gates. So half the people just took off because it was a snub, right? I mean, you're right. talking about heads of labels, heads of publishers, heads of industry, artists that were like accustomed to being kind of yeah. played to. Right. And so he didn't show up. A guy in a Microsoft you know, shirt came out and he's like, I'm a guitar player. I'm also a vice president at Microsoft. <laughs> It was just. It, was I, it Steve Ballmer? It no, but like it kind of looked like Ballmer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I realized they had no idea of how Hollywood or entertainment related yeah. or worked. Of course at, not. At all. At all. It was like an alien. It's you know, so disconnected. Very disconnected. Like we're button-down yeah. you know, software developers, and you guys are crazy entertainers and actors and musicians, and we're like, they just didn't want to buy in. There's there's a certain arrogance. There was a certain amount of hubris. That they're just like, here's how it is. Yeah. Here's how we work, and you're going to work with us. Yeah. And I think even even Apple when they went in with with this 99 cent thing, iTunes Jobs came in. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was like, here's what the music's going to be. The yeah. labels didn't have a say at that point. They were beaten down, and that was their saving grace. But like they had to take that deal because it was Apple, and that was like there was nothing else. Yeah. Right. Your industry is going away, and all your inventory is being sucked away for free, or We'll give you 99 cents a song. By the way, we'll take 30% of that. So you're getting 66 cents yeah. a song or whatever it is, um, which didn't really bode well, but they had no choice. Yeah. So there had always been this kind of, and I was asked this question on a panel the other day, this NorCal, SoCal, you know, Bay Area, LA type of friction between the engineering tech side and the artistic, creative, entertainment community. And uh, I always thought that was a really interesting thing to bridge and um, and then streaming came along. Now we have Spotify and Apple Music and so on Tidal and on different ones. Like, how, like, I, I, do you think? I mean, that's we're we're in like a step in the right direction with with streaming. Hundred percent. I yeah. mean, to me, there's the more access and the ease of access that a consumer has to music, the better. We right. always talk about it all the time. I think um, speaking of friction, like the the low friction that you know consuming music is non transactional now. I think is brilliant. It's beautiful. Yeah. Like 
with any other, I mean, even with movies like Netflix and stuff, you're not directly paying like a theater, you're paying Netflix to stream, but just streaming in general, it's, it's so nice that, that like from, as a, from a business standpoint, um, you know, so non-friction, like frictional. It's, <laughs> it's what an iPhone is, right? You right. pick that up. There's no owner's manual, right? Right. It's intuitive. You got right. like a three-year-old kid could pick that up and figure it out in like two minutes. Right. That tells me that there is no friction. I could, I could find a song. I could open my door. I can make a phone call. I can text somebody. So I think it's built for ease of use. Mm -hmm. And one of the impetuses behind, you know, putting Vest together was we saw that the ease of use and the frictionless, uh, you know, listening experience was there. What was missing was the financial component, right? Yeah. The monetization going back to the creators. So let's talk about this. Um, so how did the idea come about? Um, you kind of alluded to it now, but like um, more specifically, like w w how did the idea come about for the platform that you're building? And what were those like early days like of just getting it off the ground? Like you, you knowing that you're not an engineer and you're kind of going into this world of tech. How did so that I was asked to go see this company called Circus. Um, my friend Chris Bauman in Chicago just emailed me and said, you guys, you should go check this out. Just go in there and look at what they're doing. It's crazy. So I went in, um, met with the CEO and the COO at that point, and they were bringing people to live events. It was almost like an Uber for people. Mm -hmm. Instead of marketing on a bus bench or a banner or a billboard, um, it was like, we're actually just going to skip all that and bring you people directly into your event. Um, they were looking for an entree into music, concerts, ticketing, um, events that they didn't really have. They were basically doing nightclubs at that point in L.A. So they kind of offered me a gig on the spot. I, I didn't go in there looking for a gig. I just wanted to go say hi. But they're like, we'd love to have you come join us. Um, a couple of days later, I met one of the co-founders, Robert Menendez, who's my co-founder and partner now. Um, and we were just talking at lunch about the music business. He knew my music background. Um, he's got a, a background in uh, hedge funds and quantitative financing. And he's like, why does everything sound the same? And I said, well, probably because labels don't take risk. Yeah. Right? There's, there's no one out there that's going to do something that's 180 degrees. I'll go 5 or 10 degrees off. But there's, there's a very risk-adverse environment right now when it comes to the music business. And we started talking about what the, what the pain points were. And we discovered it wasn't really production. Right, You could go make a record with GarageBand or Pro Tools or Logic in your bedroom for almost zero. Right. Um, distribution was solved. You can go hear a song anywhere in the world on your mobile device right now, any place. But what was lacking was the actual financial flow, the monetization for the work that these people were putting together. And I knew what it took to make a record. Right. Mm -hmm. if you've got an artist, you've got a writer, you have engineers, producers. producers. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole team of people. And then you have your team together. who's going to distribute and market and promote it. hundred percent. And, and tour the, managers. The and, and publishers. Yeah. They're yeah. involved in getting this stuff out. But the consumer, your generation didn't see that. They were just like, Oh, it's a song. It's on my device. Right. I'm listening to it. You forget that, you know, Spotify doesn't really list a credits. Like, like mm -hmm. back in the day when you had liner notes, you could see who the bass player was. You could see who the second engineer was, what studio was recorded at, et cetera, et cetera. So we started talking about it and said, why don't we structure something that takes advantage of technology, but also puts remuneration back to the creators of this music. And that's where we came up with the concept. And this was around what year? This was about two years ago. Okay. So 2017-ish. So 16, 17. It started out as, uh, it was called Music Market because we thought we would have label services. We would do like merchandising and all this other stuff. I had a meeting with a guy at Warner Brothers 
Um, it was actually pretty cool. And he's like, you know, you should just focus on doing one thing really well. The transactional piece of what you're building is, is the unique thing that you guys have, right? Mm -hmm. Forget about any, anybody can add a merch component. You guys allowing a public to buy in to, to the actual underlying rights of the music. He goes that no one's ever done before. So we looked at this as an IP marketplace. Yeah. Um, we knew that there were already existing collection mechanisms in place around the world called performing rights organizations and labels and publishers collect from all these other countries and territories constantly. So we just had to tap into the rights holders and it could be someone who's a producer, co-writer, performer, guitar player. Like the publishing label, side of stuff. Anybody that has yeah. rights. It could be master rights, could be songwriter yeah. rights, could be publisher rights. As little as 1%. And we said, we sought to actually put control in the creator's hands. So, you choose the percentage you want to put on. You choose what you want to raise. You choose what the reversion period is. We did three, five, and 10-year reversions. There is no transfer of copyright. There's no transfer of actual ownership. It's a crowdfunded advance against a royalty stream. Hmm. But that so, idea so simply put, it's a way for consumers who are fans of the music to have a piece of, is it? like? Am I correct in saying that? Like correct. Kind of have a piece of the success of that artist? Correct. So it, like a we, Kickstarter campaign, essentially. It's it's like Kickstarter, except yeah. Kickstarter doesn't really put you in a in a royalty position right. typically. Right. So one, we wanted to make it democratized for everybody. So we let as little as five dollars, right? So even if you're a barista or you're a high school kid, and you want to put five dollars behind a song, you could do that. It's not an auction for a high net worth individual. It's not you know a hundred thousand dollar investment. It's five dollars on up, mm -hmm. and then you get a pro rata piece of that royalty stream for a period of time. Got it. So, run us through the process. I'm a consumer. Yeah. Um, I get on your website or app. It's an app. App. What's next? So you download the app. It's it's in the Apple Google stores. What is that? What's the app called? Vest. V E Z T. Okay. Um, and then you register. You can put a credit card in. Uh, you could browse through a selection of songs that are up there, and we launch new songs, a couple or three songs every week. I think there's about 12 or 15 things live on there at any time. Um, we've got much more catalog in the hopper than we could feature at any time on the app because we have to balance our user base with the actual content. But then you could go through and see, you know, okay, I really like this song. They're offering 5% of the song and they're trying to raise $100,000. I'm going to put in $10, right? You click buy, charges your credit card, and then you get a transaction hash, which is available on the blockchain, that shows that you own whatever the percentage point zero two percent of the rights of that song and the term. So again, three, five, and 10-year reversions. So anything that happens within that term, that window, you benefit from, mm. right? So if, and if, you, if it doesn't recoup, you stay in the rights until you're made whole, right? So say you put $100 on a song. Got it, got it. Three years later, only $90 has come back to you. You stay in until you collect the other $10. Mm. So the term at that point won't matter. The term extends until Extend, you're until fully you're recouped. recouped, right? So at some point, I mean, people look at this as a collectible, right? There are people that never want to give that right yeah. back. Like, yeah. I just want to own that song because right. it means something to me. It's, right. it's an emotional connection for me, and I don't expect to have some huge earning event. I just, I just want to own a piece of that. So the one thing I'm trying to understand is how does an artist get their record on Vest? Like right now, if Pat and Posh decide to start a band, we don't have any money, we're like, okay – we think we're good. We're going to put it up. It, are we the audience? So there's something called request an ISO that's in the top banner of the app. So if you're coming from zero, you can click on that. It will ask you to... What's ISO? 
uh, I sorry, ISO's initial song offering, which is an okay, offering. Like IPO, ICO, initial yeah. song. It's just a clever play yep. on words. Um, <laughs> and in, in there, I'll say artist name, song name, you know, potential contribution amount. Once you can show us that you could potentially raise $500 or more, mm-hmm. we'll launch an ISO for you. I mean, mm-hmm. we can't really deal with anything below that. It doesn't make sense at scale. Yep. Um, the other thing you do is email us directly. You just hit support at vest.co or hit me or any, any of our team. Um, right now, we're, we're kind of white-gloving it, and we're also doing catalogs from publishers and labels, which I think at the end, 90% of our content is going to come from big labels and publishers. But um, the onboarding process is very simple. You sign what's called an onboarding agreement. Determines what percentage of the song you're putting on, what the amount is you want to raise, what the reversion period is. We get what's called a letter of direction. So that allows us to collect from the source, whether it's a label, a PRO, or your publisher. So whenever you get a royalty check, if you've done a 5% deal, 5% of that money comes to us, then we distribute it out to the actual buyers. And who owns the song? I mean, like, does, this, does the artist own any part of it? Well, the artist continues to own all of it. So for us, or I th- I'm not sure if what you're asking, most songs are owned fractionally already. Right. Right? A producer might have four right. master points. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might be four or five, eight writers on a song. They each own their own share. Anybody that has ownership rights in the song can transact those rights. Any, just like if you own 10% of this building and you want to sell it to your brother, you can yeah. do that. Yeah, um, yeah there's the, the rights don't allow for licensing, contracting, obstructing a contract. So just because you buy into the royalty stream doesn't mean you can use it in a film or on a YouTube right, or anything right. like that. So the ownership of copyrights. You don't own the license. Correct. There's no license, right? You're just, you have the right to receive royalties based on the amount that you advance that artist or rights holder. But, but can I give away 100% of my song? You could. You could. In that case. So that piece that's, um, being, that's on Vest is coming out of the artist portion of like the the rights? Whatever portion the rights holder is coming from. So if you're, right. say, a producer, we had Matt Squire did the first Panic of the Disco record. He put up one of his four points, I believe. Uh, I see. That's okay. coming from the label because those are master rights. Mm-hmm. If he was a writer and wanted to do his ASCAP or BMI monies, we could do ASCAP or BMI, which are performance royalties. If he had a publishing deal through Warner Chapel or Sony ATV, we could take one as little as 1% of his publishing rights. Let me go a little deeper, just because I'm trying to understand this a little further. Again, Pat and Posh band... Ah, Pat Bosch. I like it. I don't know what kind of music it'd be though. And let's say imaginary person shit. right here, yeah. Chair Junior is our producer. Okay. Chair Junior has five percent um, master rights. Master rights. Yep. We have ninety-five percent, so we have forty-seven and a half. I think my math's off. Maybe he's right. Anyways, we own the rest yeah. of the ninety-five percent. Sure. Can Chair Junior go to Vest? Yes. And get his five percent. On there yes. without our approval? Yes, because those are his rights. Mm-hmm. Just like I said before, if you own a tenth of this building that we're sitting in and you want to give that to your wife or your brother, those are your that's your ten. But the ninety percent has nothing no say? No. Yeah. That's, those I are mean, your that's rights. how that's how the rights yeah work in publishing and yeah. licensing and synchronization. Now, if you want to license it, that's it's a little story. bit different. A right. publisher has to get approvals right. oh, of the majority right. rights holders right. to license it to be used somewhere, but the actual income, moving that income stream around, it's only back royalty monies yeah. that are coming in. It's not future licensing contracts or right. sync contracts. This is earnings 
from it. You can direct those earnings anywhere you like. Can you listen to music on Vest? You can. There's a, a short little snippet. I think it's 30 seconds that, that you can sample the song. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Spotify member, you can listen to a longer piece of that. So it just like redirects to Spotify or something? Correct. Or? We're not a distributor. We're not a streaming service, but we make a little yeah. piece of it available. Has it been? Us. I know you mentioned that, I mean, in this case, the goal is to get like the large catalogs from the labels to obviously have a big catalog on Vest. Um, has it been difficult, those conversations with them? Um, or has it been pretty simple? It's getting easier. Um, BMG is on board. They're probably the third or fourth largest publisher in the world. Yeah. Um, we're in talks now with Concord, which is the probably the biggest independent U.S. publisher. Um, Reservoir Media, which also is a huge publishing catalog. Um, we've talked to Warner's. We've talked to Universal, Sony ATV. We're in discussions with all of them. Um, I think this is you know nascent technology. It's like YouTube in 2005. Um, they always want to see somebody else go first. But I think once they start to see these big checks roll in, six figures and above, they're going to go, oh, this is a way for us to monetize assets and catalogs that we weren't even working. I mean, you probably don't understand, but a major publisher works the hits, mm-hmm. right? Someone like Universal has, I think, 8 million songs in yeah. their catalog. I worked at Warner Chapel for, like, a, like I interned there. So oh, then you know. I kind of have an idea, yeah. yeah. Right, they work the, they, they only yeah, have for four sure. or five creatives. The, the conversations in the office is only about the hits. It's, only, it's no only about the about hits. The so the other stuff that's in there, even yeah. though it's earning, they're still collecting, yeah. no one's reaching out and proactively working those songs. What our platform does is reach in the social media through Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, what have you, and find those fans and let them come in and monetize against these assets. So you guys advertise directly to those folks? Correct. I forgot my question. So you guys yeah, <laughs> I guess, yeah, no, I, I have a question. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was you, definitely going to ask a great question. You, uh, you'll come back. You'll come back. Um, you mentioned that it's built on the blockchain, um, which is obviously a big buzzword and something that's just going to grow uh, more and more. Um, but... Did this like from the get go in 2017 when you launched Vest? Was it the plan? Was the plan to build it on the blockchain? Um, and if so, um, you know, I guess like how did you even come up? Come so up with that one idea? of our early uh, developers had come from a blockchain based company, and he brought it to our attention. Um, it was very new technology; right. it still is. We're one of the first platforms actually in public use that actually uses it on a consumer level. I mean, people talk about it all the time, but yeah. show me one, right? So yeah. we knew we had to be ahead of the ball. We knew that eventually that technology would be adopted by every rights management yeah. company or structure. Music rights, as you may know, are very fragmented. Every publisher label, PRO, has a different set of books. It's all over the place. They're, they're, they're starting to correct that with the MMA, and there's a lot of stuff that's coming into place to help correct that. But we wanted to have a, an immutable digital ledger that was transparent that would show the recordings of all the transactions on our platform Forever, right? I mean, people use blockchain as a, as, a, as, a, as a word they just throw around that solves everything. But mm-hmm. we are very careful with it. Um, we built our platform to work with it. We touch it very lightly. Uh, we put, like I said, the transaction hash in, which shows who, what, when, and where. But it's not the underlying, uh, like if it, we built it so we can go on to the next, but we're moving from an ERC-20 protocol to a Stellar protocol, for example, now because ERC-20 is not as fast and not as inexpensive. It's become expensive and slow. Um, and two years from now, there'll be another platform that works even better. So we built and it. Stellar that is that like connected to Stellar Lumens or whatever? Stellar is Lumens are Stellar's particular token, but Stellar is a platform and it looks it. itself. Um, but so we're, we're we're conscious that things are still gelling. Um, it's still very new technology, so we wanted to be careful not to, 
make it so deeply ingrained that right. our, in our product that we couldn't do anything if it, if it moved. You know, I'm curious. So we've had early on, uh, we had somebody who was a founder of a blockchain company and we had a very difficult time understanding where this stuff is coded. I mean, like, I think a lot of folks do. Yeah. Um, what, so is, yeah. is, for example, is Stellar a language like the rest that we know, or is it, I mean, I get it's a platform, but what are these developers and engineers, what, what are they writing? Is it code? Is it a different level of, I, I don't understand anything about it. Um, not being a tech guy, I can tell you the basics. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm down with the basics. There are, so Stellar is a protocol. It's a structure. Okay. Mm-hmm. What is it compared to? What can you compare it to? Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bitcoin. It's a set of rules Ripple. that trigger yeah. certain things. So nothing outside it's, of blockchain is similar. It's to like this. a car, right? There's a Ford, there's a Got GM, it. there's Got a Volvo. I mean, they're all cars. Got it. They work similarly. There's an engine, there's four wheels, there's a transmission. You know, how do the guts of that work? So what they do is make it available. And Stellar is very, very easy to work with from my understanding. Um, every time there's a transaction, that gets fed into a, a module, a set of code that comes from Stellar that records it on their blockchain, mm-hmm. right? So it's literally a recordation of a transaction. Mm. It's, it's not that complicated, really. But to build, and, and Stellar's made it a lot easier. Again, these from two years ago to today, um, Ethereum was the only platform that enabled smart contracts when we started. There was mm-hmm. no other And that's option. what you guys were using? We started with ERC-20. Now we're migrating yeah. to Stellar. So it's getting, it's just like building a website in 1984 versus building a website today, right? You could build a website in about two minutes. Mm-hmm. I can go on GoDaddy, download a domain, and have a website up in five minutes. Mm-hmm. A right. nice website, e-commerce website. Yeah, yeah Shopify. 20 also. years ago, it was it, it would take you $50,000 oh, in two months yeah. Yeah. of a bunch of guys in a room. So it's becoming much more user-friendly, much more plug-and-play. Um, my understanding is again, we, we just so like there are the square spaces of these blockchains. Perfect, perfect analogy. Yes, it. it's getting more and more. Convenient in but does areas. that? How does that play into the whole decentralization aspect? Because now you have more platforms involved. Like, is it? I mean, it's obviously truly decentralized. Otherwise, people wouldn't be. I mean, I don't know. It's not really that, that decentralized. And and when it, it comes yeah. to rights management, it's. It's almost dangerous right now, right? Decentralized would mean anybody could say anything. Right. So you've got to have nodes of trust. And eventually, we see individual publishers, PROs, and labels, basically rights holders, having those nodes of trust. So if Universal Music Publishing said, here are the writers, then everybody else agrees. Right now, each company, each little vertical has their own node. Mm. So our blockchain comes through our node. It's not related to anybody else because it would be mayhem. Right. So I think as the community grows, as the structural availabilities become apparent to these other companies and third parties that have these rights, they will hop on. It hasn't happened yet, but we're way ahead of that curve right now. I remembered my question. Um, <laughs> it was about the challenges of tracking, right? Yeah. So I invest, you know, let's say $100 in like three different uh, songs. Um, how do you track where that revenue is coming from, right? Like, I know you mentioned a couple of things like touring, streaming, whatever it may be, but how does Vest know that? So we'll go back to the artist. So you put on 2% of your ASCAP earnings, right? Yeah. ASCAP is a company mm-hmm. that's called a society, a collection society. It re- represents writers and collects money on their behalf. Okay. So you sign a letter of direction, 2% of that income from ASCAP. Now we send that to ASCAP. ASCAP approves it. 
every time a check comes in, 2% of that on that one automatically song comes. automatically comes to us. And that's because of Stellar's capability? It's got nothing to do with Stellar at this point. Nothing to do with Stellar. No, don't believe me. ASCAP and Stellar don't want to mix those They're guys. Different yeah. worlds, okay. <laughs> like 180 degree yeah. Yeah. worlds. Um, ASCAP will send us a check. We know that that ISO closed April 30th and that we're a thousand buyers. You're one of them. So we have say a hundred dollar check. We know that check has to be divvied up pro rata based on how much everybody put in. We, it's a simple accounting calculation and we put the money in your PayPal account. Got it. So how do you see that changing? As there's more users on there, as there are more songs on there, do you see that being a challenge? That no, relationship just scale with ASCAP it. or anything else? If you can do it with one user, you can do it with 10, you can do it with 1,000. It's, 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 automa- it's automated, it's, obviously. Yeah. It's an accounting program, right? Yeah, but, but, how, but, but if that company's not there, who's, who's the holder of that money? If ASCAP's not there? Right. Well, I mean, it's like saying if you're a YouTube creator and YouTube goes away, what happens? I, I right. Don't know. So do you start now start working with another with another platform? Or you with would another? still hold those rights, and then whatever whoever stepped in. But ASCAP's been around for 120 years. So yeah. even independent artists are using them. Of course, they're the only method yeah, to collect the rights. I'm a BMI. I used to write music, so yeah. I, I, I'm a BMI. Um, I have a BMI. Like, they're a government-sanctioned yeah. collection society. It'd be yeah. like saying, mm-hmm. uh, what's what's uh, the IRS. Yeah, or, or Amtrak, right? Amtrak, Amtrak is like a hybrid corporation, but it's owned by the government. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's something that most likely is not going to go away because it's not. It's only like just it's providing a benefit. It's 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 like it's like policing your rights. Like it's uh, it's somebody somebody has to somebody has to collect the rights. Yeah, right. Whether it's them or someone else. Yeah. If ASCAP went away, another somebody, somebody else right. is going to come. All the all the ASCAP members would yeah. shift over to something. I mean, somebody yeah. has to do that. Job. It's definitely a different case when it comes to like labels and, and yeah. publishing and all that stuff. So I guess, what are your thoughts on how this is going to play into where you see the music industry going in the next like 10 or 20 years? Well, I think there's going to be a much deeper connection between the creators and the consumers, right? I mean, believe it or not, most music companies, I'm talking about labels and publishers, have no relationship at retail. They do not know who's consuming. Right. Mm-hmm. Think about it. the label, say Atlantic Records, they make a CD back in the day, ship it out to Best Buy, Target, whatever. Right. Target and Best Buy know who's at the cash register. Yes, they have the data. Atlantic Records has no clue, yeah. right? You got Warner Brothers. They ship a record over to, to Spotify or to mm-hmm. iTunes. Even with streaming now, I don't think. They you, don't. You have no they idea. Don't. Spotify has the data. Spotify does have the data, and all they share with these labels is nothing. Big labels is a heat map, right? Yeah. They'll say, well, here Spotify, are your listeners. Spotify, I mean, as far as I feel like I know when it comes to stuff, I feel like Spotify knows the data they have is what other songs you're consuming so they can kind of bundle it. But like, but like, they don't know too much about your personal life. No, but no, 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 not, not in that sense. But I'm talking more so like what Steve was saying, like they know where your audience is. So once you have that information, you're like, Oh, I should tour there. I should, I should sell merch like here. Right. Like all geographic. that kind of stuff. It's, it's yeah. still very broad. I was sitting with the head of analytics at Interscope about a month ago. And I said, they're not giving you actual contact data. Right. Are you? No, he's like, he's like, no. And they don't. Right. Mm. One of the selling points of our app is we do, we want the artist to know who the buyer is. I mean, that's your natural customer. Why would we keep that away from you? Cause now you could retarget to people that look like that. Hundred percent, or you can sell them a concert ticket or a T-shirt, right. yeah. or anything. Yeah, retargeting. Just, that's just your customer. Build a stronger why following. You have a connection yeah. with your own customer, which is. But why isn't crazy. Spotify doing that? Are they afraid? It's their only value, right? Otherwise, a label will just roll over them. Perhaps, I, I think they should share it. And and 
Honestly, if I'm a label and I'm negotiating every year my license to Spotify, I'm Warner Music. I'd ask for that. I would say part of this license is going to be you giving me actual. Yeah, I'm going to over that. Take the title. Yeah, I don't want a heat map. That tells me something very Nothing. broad. I want the names of every customer, yeah. and they know what the names, emails. I want to. I want to connect. 100%. I almost guarantee you that. Labels would pay more money to Spotify, hundred percent. If they like, I mean, exponentially more if they gave them that 100%. information, because now you could literally use that information to target those folks via have an email newsletter. Have yeah. them on they're just media, starting to wake up to them. this. They have they we we go into these meetings and I forget where it was. It was a major label, and they were like, "Why would we want that data? Like, why would you want to know who your end consumer yeah, is?" Stupid. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you if you give me the. I'll give you the idea, but I have to. I have they're, to sell to you. It is so foreign yeah. to them, right? They've been doing it in a wholesale business, a B two B business, forever for a yeah. hundred years. It, it'd be like you know. Walking it's mind blowing how both Spotify and Apple, and 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 it sounds like this is going to happen eventually. But even to this day, as as big as they are. Don't provide analytics when it comes to things like music or even like podcasting these days. Like as a podcast, we don't get much right? analytics. Like we don't know. We, do get who are, we don't even know who our consumers. We I don't, know. I'll tell you this: we don't know how many subscribers we have. I know. It's Nobody incredible. Does, yeah. Right. And it's if insane. you're a Spotify artist, you get a heat map. Yeah. Why shouldn't I know who's consuming my music? Right. Yeah. I don't mind paying you your fee or whatever. That's fine. But, but who's I want to know who my customer but who's is? Who's decided that? Tech as a whole, I think, is, has put that barrier in place very early on, right? And I, I, it, it may be different when you're talking about huge corporations, but I look at this from the artist's perspective, right? If I'm a songwriter and I'm trying to make my way and, and put food on the table, I don't want someone standing between me and my consumer. I yeah. want to know that person, develop Here, a relationship. Here's what I see a problem happening is, you know, the artist has um, a very close relationship with their audience, and let's say they have an email list of, I don't know, 100,000 you know they're not a huge artist, but they're decent. They just release music straight to their email list um, off of uh, you know whatever, just like a download link, um, not on Spotify or whatever. And just listen, that's possible. <laughs> and but here's here's the thing, right? That is totally possible. It's always going to take a third party to make this work. Right? Yeah, sure. Are you, are you if you have a hundred favorite artists, are you going to have one app for every artist? Right. No. no, no. You want one place, one stop shop, Spotify. Well, then there's going to be another iTunes. company that comes and aggregates that. Yeah, it yeah. could be. I mean, it's gonna be like put your login information. Here's what we work like, with. It's like the financial platform. It's like the it's like the bundling and then yeah. unbundling and then it's bundling. Always, it's always like this like, pattern. <laughs> correct. I mean, yeah. we yeah. look at it as a natural, you know, relationship. Sure. Could someone go? Hey, I'm just gonna take my list and sell directly to them. Okay, good. If you want to go through that hassle, yeah. Yeah. we make it very frictionless. We're bringing a community to the table right. of other artists and fans that you may not have access to, and it's frictionless. Right. Again, there's no. The friction that we're charging, I think, $100 per ISO. There's no percentage or commission, or you know, it's we want to be very artist friendly. We want to build a community that the artists can now touch their fan base in a way that they couldn't before because those are their Love natural that. customers. Um, we always like to talk about like just challenges. So, um, I guess, is there like one thing that you can really point to as far as you know, just growing this company in the last couple of years that's been like the most challenging thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's new technology, right? People are a little afraid of something that's new. They've never seen anything like this. And they're like, I don't know. I want somebody else to try it first. We started out with $500 ISOs. Then they went to $1,000 ISOs, $10,000, $20,000. I think our biggest one's $50,000 for a Beyonce track now. Wow. Once that gets up into triple digits, I think bigger artists are going to go, oh, I can pull one fifty or 200000 off that platform for 2% of my song, not an album, not my catalog. So we're scaling pretty quickly. Um, once we hit six figures on raises, I think that's going to change a lot of the perception. Uh, but it's it's brand new technology. Be like if someone showed you a helicopter and 
you know, 1850, you'd be like, well, I don't know if I want to get in that yeah. thing. I know, but it flies. Yeah, it's yeah great. a lot of, like you said, a lot of folks, um, they, you know, a lot of, not folks, but like companies through the company messaging and branding, they talk a lot, but they don't act. And in this case, you have to show results through action for there to be real meaningful change, right? And kind of continuing on the topic of challenges, I know you raised about what, two and a half million dollars or so? The seed round was 2.5, yes. 2.5. Um, was that challenging to kind of convince investors what this idea was about and what it could be? It's hard. I mean, you know, talk to my partner, Robert. He, he <laughs> kills himself doing it. He's, he's very much on the front lines of that. Um, I do what I can. His background's in finance, but it's anytime you're, especially in Los Angeles, right? Yeah. It's, it's weird. We're learning the money's in New York and San Francisco mm-hmm. and, and also offshore. And we get money from Singapore and Seoul. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a talent creative town, right? The money is spent here, right? Yeah. You're a producer, you're an actor, you're yeah. a show. Yeah. I'm going to spend my money in LA. Um, but the actual raising money in LA is very difficult. Right. Um, Again, nascent technology, a lot of VCs and a lot of funds are adverse to music. They look at music and go, too many moving pieces, right? Crazy right. business. I don't know. Um, again, and they're not wrong. No, they're not wrong. It's, it's a difficult business. Um, but what I do know is there are a lot of passionate fans. I mean, you know, yeah. someone asked us early on, how do you know this is going to work? And I said, because I've been at shows every night where I see 100 people line up at a merch table for a $65 yeah. t-shirt, yeah. right? They don't need another t-shirt. And they certainly don't need to spend $65 on a shirt, yeah. but they do it because they love that artist. Yeah. They love I just, that I just bought a Post Malone shirt for like $45, $50. Bucks. There you go, right? I, I like his album. Because you're <laughs> basically supporting, you're part of that community. Yeah. This is a way to get even closer, right? When you're sharing in the royalty stream, um, that's a very visceral connection to the artists themselves. We think it's going to change the paradigm between the consumer and the creator. And we're using music as, you know, that's our first. It's like yeah. Amazon started with books. We're going to do film and TV. We're already talking to film and TV folks. YouTube income, Spotify income, patents, anything with an underlying royalty stream. No one has touched that, right? Yeah. They're selling you hardware and they're selling you software. No one's thinking about where's the real value? Where are the rights? How would I contact the guy right. that patented this cup? Yeah. You'd have to go find the lawyer. Make yeah. it. It's it's. There's no. So easy you're working all with Wilson Sincini still? Um, I, I don't currently work with Wilson yeah, yeah, Sincini, yeah, yeah. but I, I know those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. those guys are big. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, it's been a great combo. This is great. Yeah. No, this is, I mean, just like thinking about this idea, obviously, or this com- com- business, like, you know, where it's going to go and how, how much like this industry, specifically music, is changing, um, you know, moving from, you know, a more structural thing to like independent artists and kind of artists having to build their own teams, like they're their own startups and businesses and having this like, Kind of like going back to like before there were labels maybe, which is like, how do we make money? Like, how do we go about this thing? Grassroots, what are our income streams? You know, streaming is one, merchandise is another. And in this case, you know, community is a huge It's piece. pretty fragmented. We were yeah. really happy. Our first artist uh, that took a check was a guy named Chuck English. He had written a couple of Mac Miller songs. Yeah, yeah, Chuck English, uh, he, has, he does a couple of remixes for like... He's, he's yeah. got two or 300 songs. Yeah. And he came and I, our first check to him was about $8,300, which is enough money to move the needle, right? It's, you, could, you could put some food on the yeah. table with 8300 But he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use your platform to make $5,000 a month. I'm like, well, Chuck, we don't do... A monthly salary. He's like, no, no. I'm going to take little pieces of each one of my songs and put them up every month, such that I can earn five thousand dollars from your platform. And I thought, there's a guy that's looking at this as a resource. Yeah. He doesn't have a label, doesn't have a publisher, doesn't need to. He's using us to to finance basically whatever he wants to do with that money. Right. Whether it's pay the rent, go in the studio, 
put some touring stuff together. That's how we see this working at scale, right? It's a way that organizes the money flow for an artist versus you're getting fractions of pennies from Spotify or a couple dollars from YouTube or a little bit from your merch. This is meaningful income that can be structured on a monthly basis if you do this right. Have there been success stories yet on the folks that are like the investor side, I assume? Yeah, we've, we've done a couple of rounds of royalty payouts. Um, again, we don't, we don't you know, purport yeah. to have any, any type of say in the royalties themselves, but um, we saw one of our top customers come in and made 50% back in the first quarterly payment. So oh. again, it depends on how the songs right. do. It depends That's, on what your taste for music is and if you have an ear for it in a way too. You could have no ear for it, but, but have a song that True. performs really well, right? Yeah. At scale, if we have 3 million users, just having a song on the app could increase the value right. because those 3 million might share with their right. 10,000 friends exactly. and family. And now you've got 300 right. million streams right. that takes the value from X to Y. It's in the user's best interest to let people know about Correct. not only Vest, but also the song. It's so, one of the few places where someone yeah. pays you right, to right. talk about and promote your right. song. So do you right. see Crazy. this like in like, let's say in like the next 10, in like 10 years from now when like uh, there's all these transactions going on on Vest and there's like, you know, artists are able to make a significant amount of money and, um, the investors are getting paid back through the success. Like, do you see this as being an, an, a space that's just the music industry where the artist who is able to build the strongest community is going to have the leverage and 100%. be able to? We've already yeah. seen that. We have a guy named Julian Extra, right? He had three thousand Facebook fans, very small audience, but he almost got a one-to-one response when he put yeah. his first song out. He had three thousand people come in wow. and buy in. Now he's tripled that fan base. He was driving Lyft. He got himself a publicist. Now he's on a morning show in Chicago on ABC. And now he's moved to New York. So he's, t again, used this as a resource with an engaged fan base. If, if no one likes your music, you're not going to make anything. Because right. like right now on Instagram, right, right, there's people, there are artists that have, it's kind of like the artists of today, the biggest artists are the ones that have the biggest Instagram followings and not the best music, quote unquote. Um, but in this case, it's like, people are putting money behind that. Like they're not just following you on Instagram. They're not just commenting and liking your posts. They're like, paying. it's more than they're a thumbs up or a like, yeah. right? These are actual customers that are putting their dollars yeah. behind you. Put your and money where your mouth is folks. Well, it is. And, and it, again, it's something that you have or control of making the value of that go up, right? If mm -hmm. you, if you're a music supervisor, for example, and you mm -hmm. see a song that you like and you buy 5% of it and then you put it in your film, who's going to benefit from that? Right. Right. That's, it's a community, and that's how it should be, right? If, if you are buying a piece of Ford stock and you buy an F-150 and tell your friends it's a great truck, right? It doesn't hurt you. No. But the idea is to build a community that, that actually benefits the writers and creators of this music in a way that's meaningful. Let's people know that there are a number of writers and creators. If you look at our app, and you should just download the app. It's probably the easiest way to be familiar with it. Mm -hmm. But we actually give a bio for the actual writer mm -hmm. with links to their social. So it's not just like, a, a one-line song yeah. where you don't know who's involved. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to connect with Chuck English and see the other things he's written or worked on, it's right there. Love so, that. Yeah, we want to Amazing. connect the consumer and the right. creator and, and build that relationship. Steve, what do you do when you're not working? Because obviously owning a company and a founder <laughs> is not easy. I know you said you love Hawaii. Are you still going every week? No, I've been to Hawaii in, in years. Um, I don't have that much time. I mean, it's really... Yeah. This, is, this is a 24-7 gig. Um, we travel a lot. My partner and I are... In different countries, we're, in, we're leaving New York tomorrow for four days. Um, but we've been in Dubai, we've been in London, we've been in Stockholm, we've been in Seoul, Singapore, Hong Kong. Um, it's this is the time to, to to really get down and do the work, right? I mean, three years from now, five years from now, we could talk about that. But um, I, our, my focus right now is getting this done and built. 
um, and making it successful and, and letting artists really have an option that they haven't had before. And so Vest is available globally? It's available globally. We have a South Korean app that launched in July that is available just in South Korea because um, K-pop is so huge as, as an yeah. influence in Asia. Um, but our tech team has migrated over there. Um, but yeah, just South Korea and then our version and we're, we're launching in Latin America very soon. That's awesome. Love it. Well, we're huge fans. We're excited to see where the Thank company goes. And thanks so much for being on the show. And, and appreciate you taking me. time out of your Saturday to hang out with us. No, no. Good to see you guys. Thanks, thanks. Bosh and Pat. <laughs> Let me know when the band comes together. Absolutely. 